if you're not enthusiastic about what it is that you're pitching, just find another job. It yeah, sounds, right. it sounds yeah. so harsh <laughs> oh, if you can, I mean, of course, but, but you know, business it's relationship oriented. And I think even being a lawyer as well, I mean, it should be, I should be able to be excited about what my clients are doing mm. and uh, that enthusiasm, it can't be faked. In today's episode, we will focus on negotiation. We will also look into the cultural differences between Europe and US in terms of negotiations. We have a special guest for you today who is not only an author who written a couple of negotiation books, he's also an international business lawyer and a business developer who attended law at both the University of Pepperdine and the famous Berkeley University. Welcome to the Megadeals podcast studio, Mr. Gary Gutenberg. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure. So can you talk a bit about uh, who you are and why are you in this podcast? Oh, that's a very good question. <laughs> who am I is an interesting one. <laughs> I don't know, no. Um, still, still wondering. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Still that's searching. a puzzle I can't, it's missing a few pieces, I think. <laughs> no. Sorry. Um, no, but I'm, as you said, an American and I've been in, living in Sweden for about 20 years now. And uh, I guess um, maybe if I stick to what's relevant, that would be that uh, I studied law in the United States. I did a, a legal studies degree at the University of California at Berkeley. And then I s obtained a Juris Doctorate degree from uh, Pepperdine University School of Law in Southern California. And uh, I started working within business litigation, as a matter of fact. But then over time and having moved to Sweden 20 years ago, I migrated into international business development and helping close international business deals. And I think having this litigation background, in a way, it helped understand what can go wrong in deals and uh, how to prepare my clients uh, to make better deals, essentially. But also I had within myself, I think, a natural interest in business. You know, a lot of lawyers were fixated on risk. Yeah. Business people are fixated on opportunities. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think there's an interesting opportunity to cross over there to, uh, totally. yeah, to ensure that uh, each respective position is accommodating the other. And then actually you can learn from each other quite a bit. Mm. So uh, being a California lawyer living in Sweden, it's not a bad place to be. I mean, here mm. you have uh, so much innovation and there's a receptiveness as well, I think, to Americans and uh, especially if you're hardworking. I mean, that's the bottom line in the end. Mm. So, uh, you know, I'm a pretty hardworking guy I've been. And so uh, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of different interesting Swedish tech companies and uh, helping them take their businesses abroad, basically. And so what I'm doing here today is to try to find some bridge uh, between this mega deals concept that you have and your services, and uh, which is it's a very ambitious mm. approach to trying to, I think, uh, bring structure to something that has so many moving parts and is rather complex to make fluid. Mm. Uh, and then I'm bringing to that my background really as an international business lawyer, but also I similarly have a passion for negotiations. And I think, I think there's a parallel. Sure. 
trying to bring structure to negotiations. It's not something people readily think of as lending itself to process orientation, but I think it totally does. As mega deals, all those – the deal orchestration that you talk about, you know, it doesn't seem for a lot of people that that would lend itself to good structure, a good process orientation. But actually that's what you're bringing to the table is a new way of looking at it cohesively. And so that's that's what I'm here to talk about a bit uh, from my background. I think your bridge is pretty interesting because a lot of mega dealers but also salespeople in general are struggling a bit with their internal legal departments. Yes. that are So the salespeople want to go for the opportunity. The internal legal department is trying to mitigate all their own risks, mm-hmm. uh, whereas a lot, a lot of the insights in mega deals is about, yeah, you need to mitigate your own risks, but you also need to mitigate the customer risks, right? Uh, which is sometimes a bad, like to your point, a battle between yeah. sales and, and the legal department. No, I totally agree. And so I mm-hmm. think the question is then, at what point should the business and legal team come together? Mm-hmm. Should it be after the mega dealer's gone out and found this great opportunity and they've planted a lot of seeds and then the, this kind of new deal is growing somehow? Or should it have been earlier on that right. the lawyers had prepped, that they had somehow benefited from each other? And that that's the synergy everybody's mm-hmm. always after. Mm-hmm. But it's incredible. And also risk mitigation, it's an opportunity to monetize as well. Totally. If we can lower your risk, how do we charge for it? Mm-hmm. And how do we proactively – anticipate what risks are of concern and Mm -hmm. structure the deals accordingly. Yeah, we recognize this as a risk. We can accommodate that. Here's the price tag or whatever it is. You know, make it predictable. It shows you're doing your homework as well. It's not a bad thing. But yes, I I, I often say the discussions with my own clients are very often harder than with the counterparty because, you know, there's this tension really between business and trying to have risk management. But then also there's a um, cultural component here as well. I'm an American, so I'm typically approaching deals still as an American would and trying to figure out ways of extracting the best value out of the deal, Mm. but still maintaining a good relationship. Whereas, uh, you know, this maybe starts to sound a little bit controversial, but I think Swedish companies, if I limit this to Swedish companies now, my perception is they tend to be too reasonable from the beginning right. in deals. So I'm constantly struggling to say, you know, are you sufficiently valuing yourselves, your mm-hmm. company, your mm-hmm. products, your services, what you're bringing to the table here? And um, I could talk forever. So let's. right, right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's so interesting because I mean, obviously, you're international business lawyer who who written two books. Uh, one is low stress, high profit negotiations, and the other one is the negotiation curve. I read both of them. I love them. Oh, happy uh, to hear it. But but when I think about you, I think of you as a, a salesperson. So yeah. I think of you as a salesperson and uh, a, a leader, a thought leader, a teacher. But I mean, your profession is a lawyer. Yeah. So where does it come from? Uh, mm-hmm. h- how far do we have to go back in your <laughs> life to find all the sales parts? Yeah. But you're the same, David. You're also a lawyer. Yeah, you really are. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, this is <laughs> yeah, something yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. Gary, yeah, Gary. Uh, uh, I see myself yeah. more as a, more as a salesperson, and then mm. I have a bit of law on top of it. Yeah. But, well, you're much more likable than me. No, I'm no, not. I'm not. <laughs> no, for sure not. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You. No. Um, no, it's a good question. I just want to say, firstly, I take that as a great compliment. I think that uh, a lot of people wouldn't understand that for lawyers, particularly business lawyers, we 
really appreciate hearing that we have something to contribute on the business side. And I think that's often overlooked and even frowned upon. Mm. Maybe you should avoid these lawyers that, you know, think that they know something about business and they actually want to, you know, contribute something here. You know, there are people who are perhaps uh, feeling as if they've uh, not um, manifested this business opportunity that they had earlier in their life or whatever it is. Uh, but uh, I don't know. I think if you have a natural knack for it and you have an interest, and I think from my side, business is more exciting than law. Business is opportunity driven. That's where the magic is happening, you know. It, we're ring fencing lawyers a lot, you know. Yeah. We're kind of like making sure that things don't go wrong, Ooh, but we're exactly. not really certain how to make them go right. Mm. We just, you know, mm, so I think the business side's much more uh, dynamic and exciting. Mm. But if we talk about how far back to go, I mean, I, I would have to say that uh, my growing up in Los Angeles, my stepfather, he was what was called a jobber. And he was a guy who would be uh, going out into downtown LA and he would be buying and selling anything that you can imagine. And it, this could be garments from a clothing manufacturer. It could be uh, fixtures from a plant. It could be a jewelry store. It could oh, be really that diverse, that diverse. Oh, it could wow. be a pet food store, a pet store. I mean, actually like buying the store and all the pets are there, you know, I mean, it's perhaps inhumane in the States. We have pet stores with the actual animals. That's not the case out here, but especially back then. But so I would have this opportunity to go with him and I loved it. It was like going to the circus or something. I'd go with my dad. We didn't know where we were going. He like was, a show. Yeah. It was like a show. And then mm. he, I also got to ride in on his coattails, as we say. So it was a great opportunity to meet different people, very many people who were successful in their own right. And going into just like a clothing manufacturer as well, just to walk into a space where there's like 50,000 garments hanging, you know, mm. or 100,000. It's, it's quite impressive. Mm. But, uh, you know, he would take me with and then he would – have an opportunity, like let's, an example would be like 10,000 pairs of pants, you know, from last season. Now this manufacturer needs to move them out and they have their new uh, line coming in. And so he would go in and, uh, you know, he would have to make an assessment or even better yet, like that pet food store, he would have to go in and immediately within like five, 10 minutes, assess what's the, the kind of value here. How much can I pay and still make money? Mm. Who would I sell this stuff to? What does this party want? What do I want? You know, and this was like this matrix of calculations going on in this guy's mind. And I just love being along for it. And then he, so he was like a, a very diverse broker. He was a broker, basically. We yeah. call it a jobber. And mm -hmm. so he was basically buying and selling in it. Right. And there was a lot of distressed stores. In sure. The, you know, I was born in 1970. So the 70s and 80s, there was like bankruptcies and, mm -hmm. you know, these going out of business sales, you know. So then the companies would have a lot of stuff left over. And so, but I mean, it's just crazy. When I think back, he had to go out not knowing every week what he was even going to be buying and selling, the uncertainty of that. But then also being prepared to negotiate with so many different people and mm. come out ahead and be able to turn the products over. And, but so was it, he successful? He was, you know, I, you know, he was quite successful. I mean, it's, he was able to make a good living. We had a secure upbringing and all that, mm -hmm. but given that uncertainty, it's surprising actually. Um, but I was going to say as well that he had this tremendous interest with negotiations. So he would dissect after every negotiation when I was with him, mm. he would say, oh, let's re let, let's uh, recap what happened here. And then he would fixate on what did the other guy or woman do really well? And you what, were with him. Yeah, he would talk section. to me. I mean, oh, I was wow. a little kid. He yeah. was sharing this with like me teacher. at like 10 years old. That's amazing. Sharing. Yeah. And so he, he would be, uh, you know, what, what did they do right? What did they do wrong? What did I do right? What did I do wrong? Yeah. You know, and so he was, it was egoless. And it when did when did you feel that you could even contribute to that analysis? Well, there's a very 
good example of this actually where uh, I was at a negotiation at a clothing manufacturer, a Scottish guy. That's all I remember at this point. In LA, we have people from everywhere. And it was uh, a bunch of clothing that was being purchased. And the guy said, uh, uh, they, they negotiated the price. And then the guy said, hey, uh, Gary, uh, I must have been like 10 years old. Mm. And the man said, Gary, what do you think of the price? Um, you know, it was like a dollar and 10 cents. But a Scottish guy said The that. Scottish guy right. said to me, Gary, what do you think of the price your father's about to pay a dollar 10 cents? What do you think? Is that reasonable? You know, and I said, well, the only thing that I've noticed is on the clothing that it says the year 1979 on a lot of the clothes, and then it's actually 1980. So I think the resale on that maybe is not going to be as strong because, you know, it's outdated. People would think right away it's kind of outdated. And he said, you know, your son makes a very good point. Let's knock 10 cents a piece off. Oh, wow. And so the guy, every, he was he was prepared to piece. like, so I would get a lesson out of it. He lost money, oh. you know, and it's like such a nice it's not a I nice gesture. Yeah. No, I so think back cool. to that. It was like that man. How nice. It was mm. only for me. I mean, he mm. didn't have to do that. Right. You know, that but but so, so that awakened in me anyway, this kind of interest. Mm. And then I would be actively asking my father questions. Mm. And so I think in some way there was a seed of entrepreneurialism born from those times, ways, I think you know, so. yeah, yeah. Um, but it was also there. It's very organic and negotiations. It's an interesting thing. It's uh there's this vulnerability to it as well. I mean, human beings are coming together in kind of a vul vulnerable moment. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's beautiful. And then when you can allow yourself to actually ask for what you really want, how, how in life, when do we, I mean, we often put roadblocks in our own way. Yeah. And so in business, it's kind of like thinking about what do we really want here? And that's one of the things that I get kind of sometimes frustrated about with clients is I mm -hmm. don't feel that they solidify well enough their own worth or right. their company's own worth right. or their products or services and what they're actually contributing. So, um, but I think that's a bigger problem than just for companies. I think if you ask that question in general to people, 90% of, of the world's population, they don't even know what they want. Yeah. No, I, mean, I for, agree. If you really dig down to what you actually want out of life. Yeah. No, most people don't know that. No, 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 no. Well, it's difficult. I mean, in, in, in their defense, there's a lot mm. of uncertainty in life. And I mean, there's, mm. a, you know, things there's take so twists and turns. opportunities as there's, well. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, you look, I think we're kind of wired for fixating on negatives. Mm. That is this reptilian brain yeah. we kind of have. Mm. I mean, that's just the way it is, you know. So, but uh, we have to use this incredible intellectual capacity we have as well to question that mode of thinking because it's very limiting. Mm. And so I agree. But I also struggle with, you know, identifying exactly what I want. I right. mean, I think it is part of the human experience. But I guess you know about Kahneman's loss aversion. I'm not sure. Well, it's, it's connected to what you're saying. Okay. He, so he, he won the Nobel Prize in economy. Yeah. And what he proved was that you're two and a half more prone to avoid risk yeah. than to gain an upside. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. I yeah. mean, I think Think Fast and Slow is, the, is his book. Thinking Fast yeah. and Slow. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I recognize the book. Yeah. yeah. But also in Sapiens, this mm -hmm. uh, yeah. author, yeah, he mm -hmm. talks about this as well, just like how even how people communicated mm -hmm. back in the day, this gossip and it served a function of mm. warning people constantly. There was a right. disproportionate emphasis on the negative. And, but maybe, you know, our lives are not that uncertain mm. at this point. But then again, we have COVID. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. I so mean, some things. Yeah, it's are, a cave syndrome. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you look into negotiation, I know that you have like six 
bullets, almost yeah. like the five pillars of the Megadis book. Yeah, yeah. Um, is that something we want to go into and, and, and look? Um, well, I can highlight what they are. And I can actually, you mentioned before, I have this book, uh, Low Stress, High Profit Negotiations, mm. and this is available on Amazon. Um, but that is actually, uh, I, I should say, one of the challenges that I found with negotiations is there. if you look at the literature that's out there in negotiation literature, there's not really anything process-oriented. Right. It's very much about tactics mm-hmm. or right. gamuts or tips and tricks and this mm-hmm. kind of thing. And I don't – what I like about the Mega Deals book as well, it's not about shortcuts. It's actually the long process, what's required. It's digging yeah, into the depth yeah. and breadth of what has to be done. Yeah. And so with negotiations, I think it's the same thing. If you want to do it right, I mean, I, I don't use tricks when I negotiate. I'm really trying to understand what the value proposition is. Mm. I really want to dig deep into what we're bringing to the table here. What are the risks that the counterparty has? How can we address these risks? How mm. can we meet their expectations? There's, It's a lot of work. I mean, like 90% should be done before you're actually at the negotiation table. Mm. So um, if we talk about what I consider to be key elements of a negotiation process – I uh, start with qualification. Maybe I'll kind of draw some parallels to make it yeah, yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. So free. the first step is uh, qualification. Mm. And uh, the point there being that you should only pursue deals that are worthy of being pursued. Mm. You talk about disqualification in your yeah. book, and that's because there's so much money that is going to be expended in resources and landing a mega deal. And I, I think you talk about a T formation. Correct. Yeah, on the funnel instead exactly, of a V. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Whereas the typical B2B business-to-business approach is this funnel kind of approach. But I still think if you have a disqualification step, then you should have a qualification step that follows. And that's because of the business and legal issues, financial constraints. And and so uh, that is kind of what I focus on. And right. it's also – this qualification step, it's a really good opportunity to collect intelligence from senior executives that can mm. contribute to what's going to happen now right. if, once it passes qualification. And then also, when does it fall out of qualification? Let's say it was qualified. Maybe yeah, some of them. Something happens and it's there's some new, Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. Some, where, what parameters were set mm. to ensure that this thing stays on course. So that's qualification. The next is organization. Mm -hmm. And organization is very important because this is managing people and information. And as deals get increasingly complex, there's more and more people and more and more information. So the outbound information, the inbound information, it needs to be handled in a responsible way. Right. Uh, A good example is if you have your representatives who are giving inconsistent messages to the counterparty, Mm. they do this cherry picking thing. They they pick the best and leave the rest. Mm -hmm. And so that it's very important that you have protocols in place to regulate who is even authorized to have communication points or touch points with the counterparty. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then what are your non-communication lists? What shouldn't be communicated? It doesn't have to mean that you're being devious or anything, but it's like, you know, your own financial information that's rather sensitive. Why should you be disclosing that? Mm. And I think sophisticated counterparties, they're quite good at eliciting information from uh, a target without them even knowing that they're divulging things that they shouldn't divulge. So that's why it's important to, especially technicians, not to, sorry, technicians, but very often they can be explaining things that they shouldn't have explained, sure. you know, and uh, so- Not thinking about, oh, this is actually sensitive IPR or- Exactly. Or this is a, the business a, implication yeah, of yeah, it. exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so, but, but whose fault is it really? If mm. they weren't informed in advance that yeah. you aren't supposed to communicate this. So I, I think- I'm That's risk, inf- risk mitigation. Exactly. So- in terms of risk mitigation, it's quite important uh, there. The next is preparation. And this is, uh, so we talked about it's six points. So I should just say off the top of qualification, 
organization. organization, preparation, execution, evaluation, and then refinement. Uh, so now we're moving on to after uh, organization is preparation. And this is just like there's pre-negotiation tactics that start to happen. There's gathering intelligence. You talk about ecosystem mapping mm-hmm. and influencing. I think that would fall within my concept. It's just more sophisticated, but that would fall into my concept of preparation, the things right. that should start happening there. Right. Identifying these champions and Trojan horses that mm. you do. And mm. and then what do you do with them? Mm-hmm. You know, right. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the next is execution, and execution is uh, really looking methodically at – now it's kind of tactic-driven, but not because I think it's so good to use tactics. It's more – you have to understand what these things are. What's the rhythm of negotiations? And then how do you neutralize tactics that are coming up? But also sometimes it does make good sense to position yourself in a, in a viable way in a negotiation to ensure that you're protecting your bargaining position. Uh, so – What I do in this execution phase is I look at the common tactics that come up at the beginning, middle, and end of negotiations and how these tactics can be used or defended against. Right. And so it's just methodical looking Mm. at it that way. Then you have uh, evaluation. And evaluation is just essentially was the negotiation a success? Mm. You know, you're basically looking at the lead negotiator, the team, and the deal. Mm. What was our objective and what happened? Right. Was Where did we fall short? Maybe we went beyond our expectation. And then the last and most important, in a sense, is refinement. And this is like, you know, your negotiations should not be one-time events. Mm. These should It should be a process of negotiation that's yeah. iterating. You refine and iterate. Act, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, where can you like get you better? Like you and your dad did. What yeah. were the learnings from this negotiation? Exactly. How can we move it into the following one? Yeah, you know, it's a perfect parallel. And that's yeah. exactly, and it's like, it's that kind of enthusiasm that yeah. one should bring to yeah. doing business. Because that's, I mean, you're, it's so organic. David is a strong believer in actually not to develop things. So he's, he's used always graduate. No, I'm kidding. His favorite one is never graduate, yeah. which is basically in line with this. No, but it, but the thing is it takes a certain humility. And David, you have that. You're, yeah. you're a very driven person, but you're also very humble. And you have yeah, a, totally. a tremendous capacity for getting people to uh, appreciate what they can contribute. I mean, that, that is your leadership quality, which I think you really have. You kind of – other people feel like they're highly capable in your company, not because they're delusional, but, but because you help distill what it is that they're bringing to the table. And I you know, I know that from personal experience with you. Yeah, I, I, can, I can agree to that. And for so, those who don't know, David – maybe you know, Gary, but David actually had the highest leadership score within the whole of American Express globally. That's pretty yeah, amazing. Was, I think, and I've seen that live many times. Yeah, uh, I think it was same year that I brought you in uh, to help me with with the team because you have um, an amazing way of listening to people and then formalize it and into you know tactics and also you don't know it but you're you're a great sales guy so you helped us with with our value proposition. Oh, that's so great. that's cool. I mean, being a lawyer helping mm-hmm. uh, Amex Nordics with the value proposition. So now that, that was you, you did a great job. Uh, now, now he did it again. Yeah, but that, but exactly. he truly means it. So no, so but it is, uh, you know, <laughs> and also you were comfortable enough to bring somebody in out yeah. of context yeah. to mm. do something that would contribute to what you thought would be a meaningful development to the company, and mm. that says something about your capacity to think laterally, also. Yeah. Mm. And I think in business, that's maybe one aspect that's a bit hard to address, really, with mega deals, and then also with negotiations is this lateral sometimes it requires a certain creativity and where that comes from i don't know mm. 
but sometimes it is, uh, you know, this open-mindedness, listening to people, but also listening to yourself and letting the situation kind of ventilate a little bit. And also knowing that to use experts. Yeah, yeah like, exactly. You have you to can't, know your Like if you appointed Megadil is super complex. Yeah. And, mm. and so you can't do it as a single individual. It's, mm, a, no. it's a one-team effort. Yeah. So, True teamwork. Yeah. And, and that includes also bringing in external advice. Exactly. Mm. And that is a good transition to your this reference to deal orchestration, mm-hmm. which comes up a lot uh, yeah. in your videos and I think mm-hmm. in the book as well. Your, oh, yeah. The totally. terminology is yeah. used. Mm-hmm. I just love that deal orchestration. I mean, firstly, orchestration, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, you know, if you put 50 people together playing an instrument, mm. you know, it would be a cacophony of sounds, you know, <laughs> it would be symphonic or harmonious or whatever it is. Yeah. I'm not musically inclined, but I, I do like the uh, the imagery Thank there. You. And it's, it's that's how it is. I mean, yeah. you want something that's uh, like a symphony. Yeah. And uh, that it should deliver a result in the end that's recognizable, like an emotional reaction that's not total disgust from mm-hmm. all these uh, people at odds with one another, which mm. is what could happen. And this is something as well with uh, negotiation strategies. Uh, I think is it's very important that when you have the stakeholders that are involved, I think with mega deals, you're looking at the ecosystem much bigger than I normally do. You're looking outside of the company as well. Yeah, we look, look a lot, a lot, lot at also various degrees of influence to the deal, right. but probably in the in the negotiations, you you end up it's still a team, mm-hmm. but you end up with a slightly smaller group. So that's and maybe it's not governmental implications. It's not. I mean, yeah. to the same way, it's like yeah. these. A lot of these things would have been addressed yeah. in parallel, yeah, uh, or already by the time I'm kind of involved. But um, what I've seen is that in a lot of uh, companies there this orchestration isn't happening you have incredibly intelligent capable mm-hmm. uh, stakeholders at companies I mean controllers you have the CEO you have head of sales you have mm-hmm. procurement people you have brand managers marketing people the lawyer and then very often the agreement in the end you ask yourself where are they in this final agreement sure. have have their needs been addressed have their requirements been addressed mm-hmm. and it's it, in order to build on company morale, it's very important that they're not uh, disenfranchised from the whole process, Hopefully. like, you know, lost mm-hmm. in the equation. And and so that's something that I like to address as well, the kind of auditing a company's uh, deal flow. Mm-hmm. You would call it deal orchestration because I think yours is much broader, but it's really looking at these individuals at the company. How right. are they contributing? Are they actually heard? Is the result born in the actual contract itself? Mm-hmm. It should be promoting synergy. Yeah. But very often it's not the case. Think about it yourselves, you know, on working with companies when there's deals that are important that are being struck, how much internal friction there is mm. and, yeah. and how many people aren't being heard and recognized, you know. Mm. And so um, I, yeah. I want to bring a perspective up yeah. connected to that. So we often so mega deal the mega deals research is done on mostly multi billion dollar deals, some deals smaller than that. And that gives a, a a great opportunity for us to work with some of the biggest companies in the world and the right. largest deals. But it's important to understand that the whole orchestration discipline is actually applicable as soon as you sell and buy as a team. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you realize that, oh, I'm not selling as an individual anymore, I'm selling as a team, I'm bringing in technical experts, financial experts, I'm bringing in legal advice, I'm bringing in uh, product people, maybe even marketing people and so forth, then you are into orchestration by mm-hmm. default. So that's when um, the Megadis discipline is applied. And often that is starting way, way low on way, way smaller deals than the ones we have researched. So right. 
uh, we have many companies doing deals in the range of a few hundred thousand dollars, uh, but obviously the multi-billion dollar guys, uh, but also a lot of companies, especially in the scale-up category that are striving towards mm. the really large deals, but they are doing team selling. Mm. And then they really use the mega deals discipline, right. even though they're not on the level that we have researched. What I think is hard is when you work in an organization where you have a lot of people locally, but then at some point you have to bring ex- not not external help necessarily, but help from maybe another country, right? So uh, you have a yes, you have a signature, and then you have to roll it out. Mm-hmm. Then the the team from let's say UK come in and take over, right? So. I love what you're talking about uh, in the book, and I heard you said it many times, and I also learned it the hard way, how to start with the end in mind, right? right? So many times I've spent a year or two just to get a signature on the contract, and then it took another two years to close the deal. And also uh, maybe I got a verbal yes, and then it took another year or two years to to get a signature on on, on the the paper, right? right? So. Could you talk to us about how should you, from an execution um, or even starting earlier in preparation phase, think about the outcome, what you want in the end, so you don't end up with all the discussions or all the questions from the vendor or the buyer with all the risks that could appear in the contract. Where should you start to address and when? Well, I, it's a very good question. I, I think that uh, where you should start is really like the deal flow audit or deal orchestration audit is the people internally at your organization. I would ask, ask firstly, identify who each of the people are in the process mm. who will be involved mm. and then ask them what would a successful deal look like from your perspective. Mm. And then that is where you should start. And then you can make some kind of differentiation between mm. what's rational and what's not, perhaps. I mean, if you ask that to a lawyer, they want an airtight contract where, mm. you know, there is no risk whatsoever. So I'm not saying all lawyers would think that way, right. but very often lawyers were risk averse. So, but so that's a good place to start, I think. I love that. Like, what, what does success look like? Exactly. From your and a mechanism is never risk free. No, no. And no businesses, no, no. you know. And so, uh, uh, the other is to actually draft the contract beforehand. Mm. Mm. You know, it gives you a good benchmark for were mm. we successful or were we not, but right. also it gives an opportunity for all the different stakeholders to look at a physical mm. document that is capturing what we uh, envision as a viable deal. And then you get feedback internally from the different people who are involved. So this is happening on the procurement side. I mean, they're doing the, they're preparing the RFP and all the stuff, but on the sales side, very often you're, kind of adapting to an RFP. Mm. And so it's, but I think it's good to actually think about in advance as a sales organization, what is it that you stand for in terms of your terms? Right. But uh, in this, sorry, but in this huge companies, you have these terms and conditions. Exactly. That they're like set in stone. And then you meet another giant on the other side. Yeah. And then it's, oh yeah, if you want to make business or, oh, it's good. Yeah. So you have to, what else? You have to change this and blah, blah. Exactly. So you have to, and typically as the sales organization, the sales people, they want to, the salespeople, not the lawyers, Mm. want to accommodate the buyer Mm -hmm. and say, yeah, of course, we'll accept your terms and all this stuff. So what I try to do is educate the staff that no, absolutely not. This is the first most critical point in the negotiation. Mm. That's 
and it might be prior to the agreement itself, could be a term sheet. Who's mm. going to own the drafting of that term sheet? Mm. Who's going to own the drafting of the agreement? And as the sales organization, you typically want to fight for controlling that. And the best argument is that it's going to be you who are injecting uh, intellectual property, generally speaking. You're going to have some kind of IP involved in the process. Mm. So it's it behooves you to be controlling your intellectual property in a very serious way and uh, to safeguard it accordingly. Uh, that's one thing. The other is sometimes you can't get around it. I mean, the the counterparties, they are really tough. They say, mm. we won't do business unless you take our deal. So then I'll say, well, then we'll condition our acceptance of your contract on a few things. One is that it's not so diametrically favoring you that mm. it's an unreasonable agreement because that we're going to kill a lot of time. It's going to adversely affect the relationship. The other, it has to accurately reflect this deal. One of the biggest challenges is <laughs> that RFP – they're sometimes written to cover many different types of deals, and right. then you're trying to respond to this thing, and it's it's not even relevant, many mm. parts of it, and it creates exposures for both parties, actually. Yeah. And then also in terms of them giving you – if you're going to accept the customer's contract, uh, when are they going to send it? Mm. Give a deadline, and then all of the appendices and exhibits and all that oh. it all has to be provided at once. So I have some requirements to be able to accept a counterparty's uh, agreement. That's how I handle yeah. it. And a lot of deals are won during the RFI phase. So request for information where you have the chance to to shape Absolutely. the RFP. Mm. And if you're not awake during that period, you'll probably lose because the, the RFP in the end will not be set in a way that favors you Absolutely. at all. I've heard business people say, you know, the the – the RFP that you shouldn't reply to are the ones you didn't help draft. Exactly. Mm. <laughs> no, 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 so totally. It's, it's, great uh, exactly. Yeah. I, I think the best companies that I've negotiated with is the ones who really can explain why they have things in the contract. Yeah. Because many companies that I met, they can't really explain <laughs> why. Yeah. It's just, it's it's just in there, yeah. right? Um, so I know you have worked with, you, you probably can't say every... Everyone, uh, and but I, I know it's 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 a really cool list of companies, yeah. uh, big big American Fortune 500 companies yeah. on on your list. So if you could, I don't and know, and European name, companies, yeah, and European companies as well. Yeah. But I mean, some some really really big yeah. companies. Um, is there a company that kind of stand out that you kind of look up to because they have a good legal department who re- really understand? the customer and the business side of an agreement. Well, you know it's I mean. interesting. I, I, my mind, it's can go in so many different directions because some I uh, have a lot of respect for because they are quite tough and they're adamant in their positions. And mm. this is like the big uh, tech companies and from, you know, Northern California. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that they, they're kind of one-sided, a lot of their agreements, and you have to really fight to bring them into some kind of reason, reasonable equilibrium. But uh, so there is a certain respect I have. They understand their significance, their importance, and they also are ring-fencing their intellectual property in a way that I have great respect for. So any kind of deal that they're going into, they don't want to contaminate their own uh, assets, their intellectual property. So they're making clear that they own absolutely everything coming out of projects. And so you have to fight to try to... Uh, bring that into some reasonable uh, fairness. Um, but I, my mind went to a deal that I concluded with Verizon, uh, a, a uh, operator in the U.S. And I, I think the reason why I like that is the opposing counsel, the lawyer, was just very 
relationship oriented, which is kind of unusual, you know, and I, I we just kind of hit it off on the, this was a, a lot of my deals are actually conducted over the phone. I mean, even before the pandemic, I mean, lawyers, we call each other and we can handle things quite quickly. Generally, that's my view. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I think that it was a tremendous allegiance to facts, to law, but also to relationship. And I love that combination. I mean, mm. it, it's you can't miss with that. And that, like you said, uh, anything that I had uh, questions about, I have a rational basis for it. I mean, that is something in negotiations I think is key. If you're going to say no or you're going to object or if you're going to demand something, you have to have resistance. Uh, you have to have good faith support. And it, it, you can't just say no. If somebody says, well, why no? You have to support it rationally somehow. Otherwise, mm. the relationship goes down the tubes. Your credibility isn't there. Uh, so that particular, I mean, just to pick one company out of a hat, I mean, because there's a lot of them, uh, I, I would say that was a very memorable experience. Mm. And then I remember the opposing lawyers, she, uh, there were other people on the call, of course, not just she and I. And then she said, Gary, uh, when the call's over, can you just hold on? And then, uh, you know, then uh, it was just she and I talking and she said, oh, it's such a pleasure to be negotiating with you. And then the fact that they were in America and I'm in Sweden and mm. being an American, she right. wanted to understand a little bit more about how Sweden is. And I don't know, it was just so charming and nice. And But what a difference that makes in doing business. And that is something that I emphasize a lot is, and David, this came up in our uh, American Express uh, work that I did is I, I think that if for salespeople, if you're not enthusiastic about what it is that you're pitching, just find another job. It yeah, sounds, right. it sounds yeah. so harsh <laughs> if you can, I mean, of course, but, but, you know, business, it's relationship oriented. And I think even being a lawyer as well, I mean, it should be, I should be able to be excited about what my clients are doing. Mm. And uh, that enthusiasm, it can't be faked. And there's a cultural difference there too. I would say Americans, they smell this immediately. If somebody is disingenuous, it's, it's contrary to the popular stereotype mm. that Americans are false. Americans can't stand false people. I mean, in, in business, when you get right. higher up, you'll meet the most humble people you've ever yeah. met in your mm. life. Mm -hmm. And they're as intelligent as can be. And they're, they have nothing to, there's no ego right. or very little. Mm. And um, so I think to find that uh, enthusiasm and I think it, it, as the complexity of deals increases, mm -hmm. uh, mega deals being a very good example, it's it's so important to have this relationship orientation, but also enthusiasm right. for what mm -hmm. you're doing. And a lot of these mega deals are in like renewable energy, clean tech. I mean, there's yeah. there's so much happening in that space. Yeah. How could you not be excited about it? No, it's a huge you, impact yeah, for the world. Yeah. Absolutely. And so it's... Um, it's cool that you mentioned Verizon because they have a... CEO right now. He's a Swedish guy, Hans Vestberg. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he appeared. He switched uh, from Ericsson to Verizon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So he appeared um, at the launch that Apple had the other day. He got some airtime there. That was quite cool to hear his Swedish accent when he spoke English. Yeah. So I mean, on on that note, um, mm -hmm. U.S., Europe, um, what are the the big findings since you see both well, sides yeah. pretty much every day where are the because you, you talked a bit about it but cultural are, aspects yeah cultural yeah. aspects thank you christopher well the number one issue from the swedish perspective is swedes are just too reasonable from the beginning <laughs> mm. and so that's not a bad quality if you're kind of interfacing not i mean with other swedish companies i was going to say nordic but it's not the case if you act like that towards a danish company danes negotiate totally differently so, you know, so I, in my experience, Swedes, Swedish business people, they tend to think, 
well, you know, we should offer something reasonable from the beginning. That's respectful. That's courteous towards the other side. But it actually deprives the other side of the ability to get a win. Mm-hmm. So it's actually discourteous. It's not nice. I mean, the salesperson on the other side in the U.S. has to go back and say, here's the movement I was able to achieve on this deal. Basically nothing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but it was good from the beginning to yeah. their supervisor. They, right. They, they're like, well, did you negotiate? I mean, I. so, so there's an – Especially ex- in the big, big – Deals, in right? The big deals, yeah. yeah. What what I typically do? This is a, a real, I think, good negotiation uh, tool to use, and that is for my clients who are going to be pitching. Uh, they're going to be selling their products or services. I'll say, "What are your bottom lines?" And very often, that's basically what they're setting their prices at. More often than not, which is shocking, and on international deals, it's quite close to the bottom line. So then I say, okay, that's your bottom line. Now let's assume that you know you can't you can't get your bottom line by asking for it. If you increase that by let, let's say five percent, ten percent, I don't know, just to pick an arbitrary percentage, how would you justify that percentage? And that that can you make an argumentation for that? Why that would be reasonable? That calculation. So they go through it and they come up with these great arguments and they say, wow, that is actually quite persuasive. And I say, now now do it one more time. That second best position you had. Now go to your best position move it up 5% more, let's say, mm. how would you justify this now? And then they they work together and they say, oh, that's, yeah, we could do it that way. And that's how we can justify it. Okay. So now they're convinced that their best position, they have their best, second best and bottom line. Right. Now they've moved quite a distance and they're convinced themselves that we've been undercharging. Mm-hmm. We haven't been positioning ourselves well. And then how nice it is for me when I can be involved in a situation like that. And they end up better than where they were going to offer right. from initially. Yeah. So that is something that comes from – you ask what my interest in, is in the business side at times. I think part of it has been that lawyers get a bad rap. You know, We're treated like just costs and there's mm-hmm. all these bad jokes. I mean I would t- typically go into meetings and I would say – they'd say, this is Gary Gutenberg, our legal counsel. And then I would say, Sorry. You know, shake, <laughs> shake people's hands because, you know, it's like the black clouds coming in, you know, yeah. with the rain. But even more so, so in do, the U.S., right? Uh, yeah, I would say that's true because I think lawyers in Sweden, for the most part, are quite yeah, reasonable. I so right. Right. Yeah, I, yeah, that's my experience. But, but I guess easier. a lot of your yeah. enthusiasm around the negotiations are, are coming from the fact that they are pivotal. They uh, are. For the vendor, for the buyer, for an individual that you help. Uh it's you can really make a difference that, that's what uh, I which think. is encouraging obviously and then if you're cutting a really good deal to yeah. the customer mm. shouldn't they know you're doing that i mean yeah. i don't know shouldn't they have had to work for it a little bit to mm-hmm. you know yeah. something like that so i i think it's not that you want to create unnecessary friction absolutely not but you want to, of course, ensure that the customer appreciates the value you're bringing to the table. Right. And so that is something that I struggle with uh, very often mm. with clients. And I can, I think, come across as a bit stubborn even to my own right. clients. But it's from the perspective of really wanting them to actualize their full potential there. But are, are there aren't there two two perspectives to what you just mentioned, the 5% extra and then the fi- another 5%? So you both have the value of anchor and adjust. So psychologically... Mm. You, you can anchor a deal on a high Absolutely. level and then you adjust it and they're super happy. Yeah. And the second one is obviously uh, that they make more money. Yeah. But, but uh, and, and, and uh, the, maybe a third one is that the customer feels that, oh, we negotiate, like you, you mentioned uh, exactly. a few minutes ago, like we actually negotiated down the price by 3%. This is a big win, right? Yeah. And then when they are, that was such a great summary of it. Yes. I think that improved the way I articulated it in my book, actually. <laughs> uh, but, um, 
yes, the other thing too is as they're negotiating down your price, as mm. the customer negotiates down your price, mm. you're going to concede to make a concession on that price. And then you can demand some trade-offs yeah. for it. Yeah. So, wow, you can build some new values into the deal that wouldn't otherwise right. have been built in. Mm. And so that's a, a, a cornerstone of good negotiating in my mm. experience is that you make no concession really without getting a trade-off in return. Right. Otherwise you end up with a counterparty that will just consistently ask for things and not expect to have to pay anything. So it like breeds a spoiled brat, like a, yeah. a, a child that's overindulged. Mm. So you end you, up in a trading a bit. Like yeah. So trading this towards it's this. It's so important yeah. at yeah. every phase. Yeah. And then even at the end of negotiations as well, very often the, the customer will say, Oh yeah, by the way, there is just this one more thing. You know, and then uh, very often the sales side will fall prey to that and will give it away. And so what I say is never do that. Always make it sting a little bit. I mean, mm. there has to be some kind of trade there. Otherwise, you're encouraging them to just do the same thing repeatedly. Why wouldn't they? Mm. A rational business person would absolutely come back for more and more and more if, yeah. if they can. Mm. So yeah, we have to start wrapping up because time flies when yeah. you're having fun. But I, I learned so much today as well. I, I, I'm read your books I've, I've went to law school i've done a lot of deals but i still learn a lot when meeting you every time and and i i must say honestly that that having law in the background when doing these large deals it's a big plus it's it's a great bonus because uh, i i feel confident talking about and answering questions especially around why do this um, paragraph or claw sit there? Uh, and um, I really encourage everyone to read through your own contracts if you're working at, uh, at a big firm or, or a big company. And if you don't understand words or what the sentence mean, ask your lawyers. If you, they don't understand... Maybe you have to try to rewrite the contract. Uh, I know it can be hard when it's you know your big company, etc. But the terms and conditions they they do the updates sometimes, but it's not that often that they really look at it um, from like the outside and really start to asking questions from the perspective of a client. So. Yeah, there's a lot to be done, I think, on the on the contract side. Um, I think this is, was a great discussion. And I know, Christopher, want to add something before we have one final question for you. Yeah, I think it's wor worth mentioning that uh, Garrick's an external partner to Megadeal's advisory. And especially when we engage in deal orchestration on a retainer and success fee basis, he's a high-value partner to us. Yeah, and also when... When a Swedish company would like to approach U.S., mm. how to become an American for a day? No, that's not the name of the <laughs> of the course you do. No, but that well. is there is one. Uh, I have so many different yeah. things rolling in different directions. I lose track myself what I'm doing sometimes. But yeah, I have this idea for a workshop called American for a Day, and so American basically yeah. a total immersion into American business culture, mm. looking at communications and then negotiations and the conflict resolution and right. Uh, so it's uh, quite good, I think, for companies that want to go into the U.S., but also just if they want to perhaps adopt some of this American mindset and use it in their business. Because I think Americans do have actually 
some things to contribute in the uh, business space. It's interesting and, and can be valuable. So. Yeah, back to risk mitigation. I mean, yeah. invest in, in a workshop like that and you can save a lot of money. So one final question for you, Gary, is uh, could you recommend a book? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you read a lot, but... I read like a machine. I really enjoy reading, but I, yeah, I, I was, read... I was a yo. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I, it's a challenge these days with all the tech, though. Yeah. But um, I would uh, recommend this uh, Great by Choice, I think, mm, the Jim right. Collins book. Mm. I really like that one. Yeah, the uh, sequel to, yeah. to uh, Good to Great. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Mm. Uh, I, that one I thought was very interesting. But then I, I don't want to leave it on just a business note. So there's this other book by Khalil Gibran, The Prophet. Right. Mm. I just love that book. Wow. I mean, Prophet. it's timeless. Yeah, it's a Persian – or not Persian, a um, – where was he from? Lebanon. Right. Oh, Lebanon. Okay. Lebanese. And he went to the States in the early 1920s and wrote this book that in English, actually. That's the original language he wrote the book in, The Prophet. And it's just uh, the story of uh, this prophet who's leaving some land. And then uh, before he's leaving, all the people in the community are running up asking him questions like, speak to us of love, speak to us of marriage, speak right. to us of children. And then he expounds his beautiful, meaningful views on a lot of things. And you've probably touched upon some of the quotes here and there and it's just such a wonderful work of literature so oh. but so, it's more about life or it's more about uh, life but um it, it's not really it's deeper than religion if you know mm -hmm. what i mean it's mm -hmm. more of like this um tapping mm -hmm. into like a good bob dylan song right, that kind of right. taps into the essence yeah. of life some yeah this book it uh taps into the essence of a deeper life right. and i just love it so. Just a quick comment on Great by Choice. That's yeah. one of my favorites as well. And I actually okay. hold it like you, higher up than Good to Great, yeah. because it's about uh, companies acting in, in paradigm sh shifts. And, and that is very relevant to a lot of the companies that I'm investing in and that we are, at Megadis Advisor are involved with. So either uh, existing companies with new innovations or just uh, scale-ups with, by default, new innovations. And often they... They thrive in a paradigm shift. So, so I, I totally like that book. It, it, I mean, uh, I see a similarity in your personality as mine in the sense that you like bringing some kind of structure and order exactly. to what otherwise yeah. to chaos. could be perceived as yeah, chaos. Yeah, totally. you know? I yeah. mean, there typically is some kind of like I know. No, entropy I, or chaos mm -hmm. theory going on there. But, but you really have uh, that appetite. And I think that book captures that too. Is, yeah, it does. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. very yeah. well. And uh, yeah, and so – by systematizing things in life, mm. we can elevate. And uh, I think uh, that's what you're really doing with the mega deals, with your, the book, but also your services around it. Right. Uh, and then also that's what I try to do. And I provide my legal business services and also this negotiation um, assistance as well. Mm. Yeah, so you have that in common. Yeah. Yeah, I saw sure. a quote uh, about mega deals the other day that didn't come from us. And this person said that uh, actually mega deals are more process-based than talent-based. And I, I think you agree, David, I, that, that is something we would subscribe to. So if you just understand the orchestration around mega deals and you follow certain habits, you will eventually be pretty good at it. And, and Obviously, there's always a layer of, of talent in yeah. anything you do in life. Uh, so there's maybe one domain where we've seen extraordinary ta talent within the megadeal space, and that's the ability to see where the an ecosystem is heading. Uh, that probably 
is easier if you are strong at pattern recognition, mm. like more on the right. IQ level. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but uh, that can also be trained. But most other things in the Megadis discipline is, I mean, super simple if you just know them and you know how to apply them. But I, I often say the same thing in the sense that if it's talent-based, let's mm. say, and that talent departs the company, what mm. happens to your business? Right, exactly. So, right. It, so mm. I think this capacity for orchestrating deals in the right way, it mm. should be a corporate mm. asset. Mm. Yeah. It shouldn't be residing in the mind or hands of a couple of individuals in the yeah. company. It's that's a business risk that can't be taken by yeah, companies yeah. these days. So, so exactly. I mean, the rainmaker dependency that we talk about. We see about, that again and again. Yeah. And, and when they, you know, they are rainmakers and they design um, along the way, but to do things by default, uh, like everyone knows exactly what to do uh, at any time, pretty much. And you play this symphony. That's when you really can, win the big deals faster. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we round off the today's interview uh, or dialogue with this great guy. And we thank you so much for coming to the studio today. And uh, I have to say, I hope to see you again soon. Yeah, likewise. And thank you so much for having me. It was a very interesting experience. Thank, thank you, Gary. Gary. Thank you for listening in to today's podcast. I certainly learned a lot from Gary Gutenberg and I hope you did as well. And until next time, stay safe and please join us on our different social media platforms on YouTube, on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. But we're most active on LinkedIn and we actually do post quite frequently on YouTube and if you want to listen to any previous podcast episode with Megadil's Advisory, you find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other podcast platforms. Have a great one. <laughs>